Hello, thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with Dr. Susanna Greer. Hey, Susanna. Hey, Joe. So you're about to hear Susanna's conversation with Anise Chagpar. Dr. Anise Chagpar is a professor in the Department of Surgery at Yale School of Medicine. She's a surgeon. She's a, a breast surgical oncologist. Susanna, tell us all about it. Yeah, Joe, I think this is a really nice illustration of kind of what's it like? What's it like to be a breast surgeon? And what are the things that you struggle with and the things you're excited about? Anise is um, really at the front line of breast cancer care. And one of the things that I love that she talked about is that a in the in a cancer patient's journey, a surgeon is often the first person that a patient meets with. And so to her, the trust that a patient puts in their surgeon um, in those initial discussions of and decisions about care, that she's so grateful for that, said she feels it's an honor. So one of the cool things that Anise does for us is kind of take us through how much her field has changed, not only surgery, which has gone from being for breast cancer, really disfiguring to now this, you know, all these choices that patients have around minimally invasive approaches. And Anise really weaves together a beautiful tapestry of reminding us about all of the advances in therapies and in screening um, and in clinical trials that really have helped us to understand more about the characteristics of a tumor so that we can give more specific care. And then we're going to spend the other half of our time talking about a really cool publication that Anise had on breast cancer surgery that has truly been practice changing. So maybe I'll leave you with that hook. So (laughs) we'll talk a little bit about surgeon versus surgeon arguments, how those work out, how you can use a clinical trial to really um, answer questions um, and change the practice of surgery. And then Anise is going to give us some cool insights into her findings, um, which honestly, they've been practice changing. So I'm so grateful that she is a breast cancer surgeon. She is one of a kind, and we're awfully lucky to have her. Anise, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Susanna. It's such a pleasure to be here. I am excited to have an opportunity to talk to you. So you are a breast surgeon. What motivated you to begin this career path? You know, I think I always wanted to be a surgeon, which is kind of unusual because nobody in my family uh, was in medicine, but I just fell in love with it. I loved the idea of helping people in a really tangible way, um, being able to take them at a time when they had a terrible diagnosis that had kind of just obliterated their world and be able to fix the problem and bring them out of that and be their partner in this um, and to do it in a way that uh, was really tangible and meaningful. So I love working with my hands. I love working in a big team. I love the fact that breast cancer research moves very quickly. So we're doing things today that we didn't do yesterday or the day before, and we keep getting better. Um, I love everything about breast cancer surgery. And so I think all of those things put together 
uh, really led me to my ideal career path. Oh, I love that. Isn't that fantastic when you just find the thing that you knew you were supposed to do it and now you're doing it? You're lucky. And yeah, quite frankly, your patients are lucky to have you. One of the things I've read about you is a, a quote that you said, I, I want to be my patient's partner as they go through their journey of breast cancer. To me, that's really comforting. And it echoes what you just said, is that you want to help people. This is a tough diagnosis. You want to be their partner. So can you share a little, well, first of all, I'll say that's an interesting perspective for me for a surgeon, because sometimes we think of surgeons as being um, a little bit transactional, right? It could be a transactional interaction in a patient's journey, but it doesn't sound like at all that's the way you approach your livelihood. Yeah, you know, I think surgeons are often the people that breast cancer patients meet first. We're often the people who help a patient to understand that diagnosis and kind of break it down for them. What does it really mean? How is this going to impact their life? What are their options? And there are so many options. And patients put a lot of trust in surgeons. And so you really, it's, it's such a great honor to be your patient's partner to be going through that journey with them, to help them to understand the diagnosis, to help them to look at all of their options and understand the pluses and minuses of each of them. It's so funny that, you know, even though I'm a surgeon, many of my patients, when they go and see their medical oncologist later or their radiation oncologist and they'll be prescribed or recommended a certain adjuvant therapy, a certain therapy that they'll get after surgery, they'll say to their medical oncologist or their radiation oncologist, now, wait a minute, I just want to go back and ask Dr. Chagpar if that's all right. And it's so heartwarming. Um, It's a little bit funny because, of course, I'm going to agree that the medical oncologist knows what kind of chemotherapy or, or medical management is best for these patients, but it just tells you how much trust and faith they put in you, and that is so gratifying. What a fantastic, just kind of full circle of that care approach. I love that. That would feel really good to have patients reaching back to you. I want to just kind of loop back to a couple of things you've said, and that is that patients, that their trust in you is really critical. And and another thing you said is that, is very true, is that breast cancer research moves so fast. So that trust is so critical that you're on top of it and you understand it and you're really there to guide them to make the best decisions about their care. So I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to get your perspective on how your field has changed since you became a surgeon. No, I became a surgeon almost two decades ago. Um, And so a lot has changed in that period of time. But even if we look at how things have changed even before that, it's just mind-boggling. It was only a few decades ago when patients only had one option for breast cancer, and that was remove the whole breast and take the muscles and all of the lymph nodes, and it was a really disfiguring surgery. And so now we've really moved the needle in terms of breast cancer surgery to doing more minimally invasive surgery. We now have breast reconstruction after mastectomy. We do minimal approaches to lymph node evaluation. Um, So to check the lymph nodes to see whether cancer went to those lymph nodes, we now do a thing called a sentinel node biopsy. When I was in medical school, that didn't exist. Um, But now we do that all the time. Um, and it's really a minority of patients who need to have all of their lymph nodes removed. 
But the other thing is is that it's not just breast cancer surgery that has moved really far ahead. It's everything else in breast cancer management that has moved at the same time. So if we think about how we are now tailoring therapies. So now we have a much better idea about genetics. Um, you know, back when I was going to medical school, we knew about BRCA, and that was about it. But now we know that there's a whole host of mutations that might put people at risk of developing breast cancer, and the cost of genetic testing has come way down. Screening with imaging has improved. Back when I was in medical school, yeah, we had uh, mammography and, and ultrasound and maybe even MRI on occasion. But now we have 3D mammography, which has become standard, um, and now have some really interesting innovations in terms of um, contrast-enhanced mammography, which is a study of investigation. When we think about the medicines that we're using for breast cancer, when I went to medical school, we had chemotherapy, but these days we can now really subtype these tumors. We can look on the surface of cancer cells to see whether uh, they have certain receptors. We did that back when I was in medical school too, but now we can actually unlock the genomic characteristics of tumors and figure out who's going to respond to chemotherapy, who's not going to respond to chemotherapy, who could avoid it, who might be a candidate for newer therapies like immunotherapy, which is something that we're now using in triple negative breast cancer. Um, and there are lots of clinical trials in this space, which are so exciting. And then in radiation, you know, there's new forms of radiation that are shorter um, and yet yield better outcomes. Um, reconstruction has had all kinds of advances. So every field in breast cancer and all of us work together have really improved. And that's so gratifying for our patients. You know, it's, it's really hard not to listen to you and be hopeful, right? Really hopeful. I mean, despite all the challenges that exist in breast cancer today, I, that was a, a crazy impressive list that you gave us of how the field has moved forward, um, certainly in surgery, but also in those tailored therapies and genetics and screening. And I, I love what you said about we're really able to unlock the characteristics of tumors. And I think the unlocking is a great analogy because we needed all those advancements and continue to need all this greater understanding because breast cancer, all cancers are truly a puzzle. And all of these, all of these advances add together to really impact patient care and outcomes. So thank you. Yeah, that, that was a really nice so, summary. That's so true. I mean, it, it is a puzzle. And the, the great thing is how far we've moved and how quickly we've moved um, to finding out little pieces of the puzzle and how they all fit together. That's the good news. The not-so-good news, the puzzle's really complicated, and there's a lot more puzzle pieces that we still need to figure out. But you're quite right. Yeah, we are optimistic about where we're going and the trajectory. All right. Well, I had a hard time really thinking about what to ask you because, quite frankly, you've done so much. I wanted to dive a little bit deeper in a specific area of expertise that you have, Let's backtrack a little bit. You recently published 
a really interesting and innovative study that was about breast cancer surgery. And my understanding is that what you showed was that if surgeons take just a little more healthy tissue in an initial surgery, this can help patients avoid a return trip to the operating room. So I want to talk about that, but I think there are a few things that we need to kind of qualify to help us all understand why that study is so interesting and impactful. So first of all, can you maybe share with our listeners which types of breast cancer patients would typically get surgery and when would that happen kind of in that care process? Yeah. So as with many cancers, breast cancer, when detected early, is really treatable. And oftentimes, surgery is the mainstay of therapy. Surgery is the way that we can get this cancer out of you and put it into a bucket where it belongs. Um, That way, you become cancer-free. Now, so most breast cancer patients actually are eligible for surgery. And when you are, that's a great thing because then you're often being treated for what we call curative intent. Like, we want to get rid of this cancer for you. The only patients who really are not candidates for surgery are people who have what we call distant metastatic disease. That is to say, if the cancer has already spread to your bones or your lungs or your liver or your brain, well then taking the tumor out of the breast really doesn't make you cancer-free. It doesn't render you what we would call NED, no evidence of disease, because you'd still have disease somewhere else, and therefore it would not be for curative intent. Having said that, the vast majority of patients who present with breast cancer these days are candidates for breast cancer surgery. Now, breast cancer surgery comes in two flavors. One is breast-conserving surgery. Some people call this a lumpectomy, although I tend not to use that term because very often these days, patients present long before they can ever feel a lump. So we often call this breast-conserving surgery or a partial mastectomy where we're just aiming to take out part of the breast, the part that has the cancer in it, plus a rim of normal tissue all the way around. Now, the other flavor, of course, is to remove the whole breast with or without reconstruction. And we know that when we look at survival rates, and this has been a clinical trial that's actually been done with thousands and thousands of patients and has been followed for 20-plus years and has been replicated over and over, which demonstrates that whether you have a partial mastectomy or you have a total mastectomy, your survival rates are the same. Hmm. So this means that patients now have options, choices. So the study that you were mentioning uh, really focused on the patients having a partial mastectomy. And truthfully, that's what the majority of patients with early-stage breast cancer will choose. They want to keep their breast, just remove the bad part, the part with the cancer. Now, importantly, it's important that we get clean tissue all the way around that cancer. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because you don't want to leave any cancer behind. Think of it like a moat around a castle or the white around an egg yolk. It's kind of that layer of protection that tells us that there isn't going to be anything left behind. All right. That is really helpful. I think, first of all, just to understand that if you've been referred to surgery for breast cancer, that no matter how kind of overwhelming or scary that might seem, that that's a good thing. 
Um, and I love that you highlighted that patients have choices that they can make based on their history and, and all of the things that you would, all the conversations that you would have with them um, as a surgeon. So I, I love also this analogy of when patients are undergoing this procedure that's discussed in this paper, a partial mastectomy, that you certainly want to remove the cancer. Um, but then I love the analogy of the, the moat around the castle, which you think of as a safe place, right, to keep the castle safe. And so I guess in your analogy, that would be what we would think would be healthy tissue surrounding where the cancer is in the breast. And so that brings to light a term that we read a lot about in the medical literature called um, tumor margins. So I think this is where the tumor margin is going to come into place. And maybe you could help us to understand what do you mean when you're thinking about tumor margins and how far into this moat do we go in standard uh, surgical practices? Right. So exactly right. So what we're always aiming to do is to take out that cancer with some clean tissue all the way around. The margin is when the pathologist looks at what we took out, it's the edge. So they're looking at the edge and they're going to tell us whether they see any cancer cells at the edge. That's the margin. Now, while the surgeon tries to take out that, the problem has always been and currently still is. So if anybody out there has got a great idea for how we can see cancer cells with our naked eyes during surgery, please <laughs> let me know because that's a Nobel Prize right there. Um, but that's the problem. So we can't see cancer cells. So we take out what we think is the cancer plus a rim of normal tissue all the way around. But when we give it to the pathologist, and the pathologist spends a good week slicing and dicing everything and looking at it under the microscope, in about 20 to 40% of cases, when they look at that edge, when they look at that margin of what we took out, they may find that there's a little cancer cell at that edge. Hmm. Well, if they see cancer cells at the edge, now we're thinking, my goodness, we don't have that moat anymore, right? Um, so could it be that there's some cancer cells on the other side? Could there be some cancer cells that are left behind? And we don't want to take that risk, which means that in those patients who have what we call a positive margin or they have cancer at the edge, we need to go back to the operating room to take more tissue. So that's what this study was really designed to do. It was designed to say, how can we do better? Because that's what breast cancer research is all about. How can we do better? How can we reduce the chances of needing to go back to take more tissue? Because hmm. nobody wants to do that. No patient wants to do that. No surgeon wants to do that. We all want to have it perfect the first time. Well, short of being able to see cancer cells, there was at the time a lot of debate between surgeons. Some surgeons said, you know, we can take out this tissue, we x-ray it, we look at what we can see on the x-ray. If we think that some of the calcium spots or, or some of the spicules that we can sometimes see on the mammogram are getting close to the edge, we might take out a little bit more there. But we really don't need to take out tissue all the way around if the rest of it looks okay on the imaging. Now remember, the imaging or the mammogram 
doesn't see cancer cells. Even when you go for screening, you know, you go and you have a mammogram, they may say, I see a little spot or I see some calcium spots. What they mean is they see a spot or they see calcium spots. They can't tell you that it's cancer without doing a biopsy. Similarly, even though we can x-ray what we take out and we can see a little spot or we can see some calcium spots, and we might be a little bit more worried about that, we can't see tumor cells. So the other group of surgeons used to say, well, you know what, I'm just going to take a little bit more all the way around the cavity just in case. And there used to be big arguments between surgeons. Some surgeons would say, you're taking extra tissue. What would that do to the cosmetic outcomes? You don't really need to do that. The other surgeons would look at the first and say, but you don't know that you are taking out cancer cells. What if there are still cancer cells left behind? My cosmetic results are really good. And they would go back and forth and back and forth, really not solving any problems. And so... What I thought was, well, why don't we just find out what the right answer is? Why don't we do this? Let's take out this breast cancer the best way we know how. And so we'll take it out, we'll x-ray it, we'll take a little bit more tissue if we think we need to until we've done our best operation. And before this trial, that's what I believed. I thought I was doing my very best operation. And there were many surgeons who felt the same way. And then what we did is we asked our patients to partner with us to do a study that would help us to find the answer. So what happened was we would have a sealed envelope, just like at the Oscars. And after we had done our very best operation, the nurse in the room would have the sealed envelope and she would say, are you ready to close? You've finished doing everything that you would normally do? We would say yes. She would say, hang on a minute, and she would open the envelope right in the operating room and pull out a card, and the card would either say shave, so take a little bit more tissue, just a shaving all the way around, or no shave. You were going to close, so close. Hmm. And neither the patient going into the surgery nor the surgeon going into the surgery knew which group they were going to be in. So what happened was the surgeons would follow the direction on the envelope. At the end of the day, we went back and we saw which group of patients did better. Was there a difference in the positive margin rate, the rate at which there was cancer on the edge? Was there a difference in the rate at which we had to take patients back? And what we found was this. Before the envelope was opened, there was exactly the same proportion of patients who would have had a positive margin. Hmm. But taking that extra tissue resulted in a 50% reduction in the positive margin rate. It cut the need to go back to the operating room in half. Well, wow. this was a really big deal. It was a big deal for patients because, hallelujah, now from 20 to 40%, you got down to 10% return rate to the operating room. That was phenomenal. It was great for surgeons because now we had proof. We had what we call level one evidence of a best practice. And that's what we're shooting for. 
And so this study got published in the New England Journal of Medicine and was really highly publicized. We also found, because we asked patients about their cosmetic outcome, we said to the group who had the extra tissue removed and the group who didn't have the extra tissue removed, before we told them which group they were in, we asked them, what do you think about your cosmetic outcome? And you know what? The results were exactly the same in both groups. So taking out a little bit more tissue didn't affect the cosmetic outcome but it reduced the chances of going back to the operating room in half. So this was really exciting, but it was only done at one institution. Hmm. So then the question was, well, that's great. It works at Yale with, you know, fellowship-trained academic breast surgeons, but does it work in the rest of the world? Does it work, you know, out in a, a, a suburb of Florida? Uh, with a general surgeon in private practice? Does it work in other hospital-based settings? So that's when we went about and got a bunch of surgeons together from nine centers um, and did a second follow-up study. And essentially, they did exactly the same study as we did in the first trial. And we found exactly the same thing. In fact, even better. This time, there was a 66% reduction in the positive margin rate and a 70% reduction in the return rate to the operating room. So this has now been replicated in at least two other clinical trials and so really defines best practice. And I think that's one of the examples of how breast cancer research works. We have an innovation, we test it, um, we find a best practice, we make sure that it's uh, able to be replicated, and then we change the world. Um, <laughs> and then we have a new best practice, a new platform, a new baseline on which to improve. We're not perfect yet, but with these incremental changes, we're getting there. I, I love so much about what you just shared. Um the first I would say is just giving us some insight into the fact that even though, I mean, you have this highly respected job um, and you're such a pivotal piece in the care of a breast cancer patient, you're not perfect. And I, I, I love the mental picture I got of surgeon versus surgeon having these arguments about um, this is the way that I do it. And I, I don't take all the tissue out around the tumor. And this is my best practice. And then another group of surgeons saying, but but I'm really trying to, to take everything out around the tumor all, you know, take more tissue out, um, really kind of trying to skim a little more off the moat. And, and finally, you realizing that in order to find out, you're going to have to have a clinical trial. And one of my favorite things that you've said is that you ask patients to partner with you, which I think is a lovely and such a true way to look at a clinical trial that it's a partnership and we're all in it together and we're all going to learn and we're all going to benefit. So thank you for framing it in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I think we really have to acknowledge that while we've made all of these advances, none of this would be possible without our patients. None of it. Because if patients didn't participate in clinical trials, um, we would not be advancing the field. 
Um, and so it really is truly, truly a partnership. And and this advance is tremendous. So I, I guess the next question is, so you're right. You, you did it at Yale. You expanded to nine other centers, but, and now you have a practice changing technique. So, so what next? How, how do you make sure that all surgeons are aware and um, can adopt what seems to be a, a certainly a best practice? What's the next step? Yeah, so this is one of the things that's great about medicine and surgery and, you know, is that word gets out. When we published the first trial in the New England Journal, I was floored. Within 24 hours, our paper had been read all over the world, with the exception of war-torn Kazakhstan, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, and Greenland. And I knew this because the New England Journal actually tracks metrics of where the paper's been downloaded. Hmm. Um, it's amazing. Uh, it's talked about at conferences, and then it's kind of like spinning the flywheel. Hmm. Um, you know, if anybody's read Jim Collins' Good to Great, it's those incremental changes and turning the flywheel and how each turn kind of makes the bigger turns even faster. That's exactly how research works. Um, and we all kind of feed off of each other. And then we say, well, how can we do even better? Um, and so um, the dissemination of these findings is actually not terribly difficult uh, with publications, with meetings, with podcasts like this, uh, with the lay media. Um, word really gets out. I want to pivot off one thing you said before we wrap up, and that is how can we do better? And this moves into an area which you are incredibly active in, and that is in teaching and mentoring and, honestly, in my spying on you on Twitter and other platforms, I found out that you, you teach a class um, called Introduction to Breast Cancer, which is wildly loved. So that's a different part of your life, and I thought it might be really interesting for our listeners to understand who takes this? Who wants to get an introduction to breast cancer? And why do you teach it, right? You're so busy. This must be really important to you. So can you tell us a little bit about this aspect of your of your world? Yeah. So I, I, I'm really passionate about a lot of things. Um, uh, I, I love patient care and I love research, but I also love education. And so Yale had an opportunity uh, for us to partner uh, with Coursera, which is a free uh, online platform for MOOCs, massive open online courses. And I won an award to um, do a class. Um, and so we called it an introduction to breast cancer. And my goal really was to give people, anybody really, an introduction. Um, because breast cancer is so ubiquitous, right? It's one of the leading cancers affecting women worldwide. And worldwide, when we think about global health, which is another one of my passions, um, you know, the Internet is fairly well accessible all over the world. 
Um, and so if there's an opportunity to give free education on a really important and really common cancer that can be really scary, let's do it. So I designed a course um, which really takes people from what is cancer, how does it work, what exactly is breast cancer, how is it diagnosed, how is it staged, um, how is it managed, how do we screen for it, um, how do we prevent it, tell us about the genetics. Um, and I was able to weave in uh, some interviews with cool people here at Yale who treat breast cancer in a variety of ways, all the way from genetics and prevention all the way through to survivorship. The course has been incredibly well-received, and I've been so grateful uh, to hear all of the comments. And so it's really for anybody. If any of the listeners out there have an interest in learning more about breast cancer, check it out. So my last question is really a little more specific to what you do all the time, and that is that many of our listeners are patients um, or people who love them. Is there a specific message that you would like to share with those listeners? I would say that the one thing is that this is not a death sentence. This is something that you can get through with your healthcare team. Um, I would want to give them a ray of hope and optimism because, as we talked about, breast cancer management has evolved so much. Survival rates are so much better than they have been in the past. Therapies are so much better tolerated. Um, and we're knowing so much more about what used to be a really scary diagnosis. And while for our patients and their caregivers, this is still scary. And you look at it and you think, oh my God, this is just like climbing Mount Everest. And I am shocked and I am terrified and I am scared and I don't know what to do. Remember that you have a team around you, you know, your Sherpas as you climb that mountain and you will get over what you think is a mountain. And years and years and years from now, you'll look back and you'll say, that wasn't so much of a mountain. You will be just fine. What a comforting message. Um, I think that the thought that we're not alone um, in the battle against breast cancer or, or whatever it may be is, is really insightful and something that we can all hold on to. And on behalf of the American Cancer Society, I'll say we're so glad you're a part of our team so and a part of the team of so many breast cancer patients so i'll let you get back to what you're so amazing at thank you so much anise for for taking some time to talk to us today thank you so much suzanne i really appreciate it